Accelerating alcohol policy development is necessary and urgent to achieve multiple targets of the Sustainable Development Goals. However, the alcohol industry is lobbying extensively and aggressively to block, undermine and derail alcohol policy development wherever they can. To do that, big alcohol uses international arenas outside the global public health space, especially trade-related fora such as the World Trade Organization. But how exactly and to what extent the alcohol industry uses the trade policy arena in shaping alcohol policy is still poorly understood. Hello. From Movendi International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. Warm welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. This is the fifth episode of our second season. Thank you very much for tuning in. The Alcohol Issues podcast is an original production by Movendi International. It's a show about current alcohol issues of global importance through in-depth conversations with policymakers, community leaders and scientists We explore alcohol policy issues, discuss landmark scientific studies, and expose the alcohol industry. This episode has taught me a lot and gave me new insights into a topic that needs much more attention. Personally, I have worked on trade and investment policy with regards to alcohol several years ago. For example, when the EU negotiated the TTIP and the CETA agreements with the United States under Barack Obama and Canada respectively. Or when we tried to protect alcohol policy in the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What we saw then still holds true today, many years later. Public health and human rights are at a serious disadvantage in trade and investment negotiations where preference is given to alcohol industry interests. How and to what extent the alcohol industry uses the trade policy arena to shape alcohol policy around the world remains poorly understood. Today's conversation with Dr. Pepita Barlow will shed light on this issue and provide deep insights into a parallel arena that shapes health policy without public health expertise even being present. Pepita Barlow is an assistant professor at the London School of Economics. Previously, Dr. Barlow was a research associate at the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and completed a PhD at the University of Oxford. Pepita's research examines how policies and actors outside the health sector impact on health and health policy, with a particular focus on using novel methods and data to study the health impacts of trade policies and agreements. We recorded our conversation on Friday, February 11th, 2022. Dr. Barlow and colleagues conducted a qualitative analysis studying discussions on alcohol health warning labeling policies at the World Trade Organization's Technical Barriers to Trade Committee meetings. Using the WTO documents online archive, they analyzed documents covering a 14-year period to identify minutes and referenced documents pertaining to discussions on alcohol health warning labeling policies. 
I have the privilege of talking with Pepita today about this analysis, how they worked and why their methodology matters. And then, of course, we dive into the details of their findings. We discuss what the Technical Barriers to Trade Committee is and why it matters for global alcohol policy making. Pepita and colleagues identified instances in which WTO member representatives indicated that their statements actually represented the alcohol industry interests. They also developed and applied a taxonomy of alcohol industry lobbying talking points. That taxonomy facilitated the identification of whether or not WTO member statements advanced arguments made by the industry in domestic forums. Pepita talks with me about the significance of the findings that alcohol industry friendly countries challenge another country's alcohol policy in the WTO using actual alcohol industry talking points. And we discuss the global justice dimension that most countries, actually 8 out of 10, listed in the study that wanted to improve their alcohol labeling regulation were low and middle income countries. But the challenges to their alcohol labeling efforts came from high-income countries that produce and export alcohol. In the conversation, Pepita reveals the alcohol industry playbook deployed at the WTO. And we talk about why WTO matters so much for big alcohol and how public health concerns can play a stronger role in the future at the World Trade Organization. Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. We are here today with uh, Dr. Pepita Barlow. Pepita, thank you so much for joining us and for taking time to discuss, I think, a really excellent and really important uh, brand new study um, about um, the World Trade Organization and how the alcohol industry is using it to influence alcohol policy development. So thank you so much for coming on and discussing this study uh, with me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. And it's a pleasure to be here. I was just telling you also when we were um, getting ready for the recording that I've been working from a policy and advocacy perspective for many years with the uh, trade issue. So I was very happy to see this uh, study. This is a little bit understudied. I think you also write this in explaining the background and I think the overall um, importance of this study. And then I realized when I prepared for this podcast and um, that I have come up with probably too many questions. So um, I hope that we have a chance to get through most of it. Uh, but I'm really excited to get into this uh, topic in depth with you. Oh, thank you so much. And um, yeah, there are so many nuts and bolts to this paper. I look forward to uh, to talking through all the little nuggets that we discovered along the way. So thank you. Yeah. Very generous introduction there. So let's start at the beginning. Um, what is the World Trade Organization and why does it matter for alcohol policy? I have just come from a big meeting at the World Health Organization. But what is the WTO and why does that matter for alcohol policy? Yeah, so the World Trade Organization is an international organization in much the same way as the WHO. There are member states, members who uh, sign up to participate in the WTO. And 
Upon joining the WTO, it's, you know, over 190 member states agree to follow certain rules about how they'll set new policies. And that's because any policy that a member introduces, or a, a range of policies that members introduce can create trade costs, they create business costs. So there are certain rules that members agree to follow so that, you know, those trade costs are kept to a minimum. So the WTO is really the body that coordinates those rules of trade among its members and oversees any disputes about any policies that, that may arise, among you know, various other things around intellectual property, which we've been hearing a lot about with vaccines recently. I think this is a very good introduction. What we hear is that the World Trade Organization is dealing with um, minimizing the costs that come with uh, international trade, trade between countries, and of course, minimizing the costs that um, come with trade for businesses. So for, um, for example, alcohol companies that are trading across uh, the world in their products. So there are, and I think that will be one of the big issues that we are discussing the, in the DNA of the WTO, public health considerations are not part. Can I, is it correct to say this? So, 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 so to some extent, um, and, it, and it does get tricky here. So the World Trade Organization is primarily a trade organization. And there are these agreements which state, you know, members should try to keep trade costs to a minimum. So any health regulation that could create, could create trade costs could be considered within the remit of these rules. But at the same time, there are there is recognition by WTO and in these agreements that its members do have, you know, a legitimate right to to protect public health. So in the specific agreement that I look at in my study, for example, there's a, a line that says that, you know, members um, are, are still allowed to introduce public health measures or measures that achieve legitimate public health objectives provided that it's still in accordance with all the other aspects of the agreement. So there's this balancing act and it can be a bit of a delicate dance and that's why it gets complicated and all sorts of challenges can come in because members are required to balance these two things, promotion of trade and reductions of trade costs, whilst at the same time, you know, there is some space to introduce, uh, you know, health, health policies. I think that explanation brings us then to maybe a little bit of a technical term, but I think very important aspect of your study and of the WTO infrastructure. And that is the technical barriers to trade conversation or the non-tariff uh, barriers. So what are these uh, technical barriers to trade in general and what are they in the case of alcohol policy in particular? Yeah, so great question. So I think it's slightly easier to explain what these technical barriers to trade are when we think of um, perhaps the most obvious types of ways in which trade can be prevented between countries. So, you know, for a long time, the sort of traditional and most significant barrier to trading, for example, in alcohol products between countries was import tariffs. So when you import some alcohol or any other product to a country, um, there's a requirement to pay a tax on that at the border. But over the past few decades, taxes on a wide range of products have decreased drastically. 
But it's not only those taxes, that tax that you know, or custom duty that has to be paid that can make it costly to trade. It's also when there's a difference in the type of regulation that a different country sets on its products. So if one country says, when, you, when, when we sell alcohol in this country, we want to have a warning label on an alcohol product, but another country doesn't require that, then there's a difference in the regulations. And that means that there's a business cost and hence a trade cost involved in selling in that country with the labeling as compared to the situation when that labeling didn't exist. And these are these technical, technical barriers to trade, regulations, as well as standards, say quality standards, uh, and a range of other sort of uh, procedures uh, and regulations like that. I think you make two important points. And I think it's in, in the beginning, it's also important to be fair to the trade agenda and to the WTO, there are many things to criticize. I think you will help us also understand um, with the help of your study. But in from the outset, trade is about equal opportunity to trade. So it's about if two countries decide to trade, both countries have to have equal access to each other's market, so to say. And, and then I think you mentioned that some countries, in the case of alcohol taxes, they actually use alcohol taxes as a trade barrier so um, that uh, domestic alcohol products have an advantage over foreign alcohol products and so there is uh, if both countries decide to trade with each other that is of course then discriminatory uh, behavior but then um, the second point you raised um, and it goes back to this kind of legitimate public health consideration to inform a population about that alcohol causes cancer for example through a warning label That should be a legitimate public health uh, um, objective. But for the businesses, for the alcohol uh, producers that have to put the warning label uh, on their products if they tra trade in one country and not on the other, that is costs, of course. And here is then the question um, whether that is discriminatory behavior or whether that is a legitimate public health concern, right, where... I think the, the issue becomes much more contentious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've summarized, summarized very well what some of the content of some of the discussions that I've been looking at in my research can sometimes revolve around. You know, is this measure discriminating uh, or not? Is it creating a greater business cost than is necessary to achieve that objective? Um, and all sorts of arguments can be, can be made to sort of justify that a particular stance either one way or the other. And in your study, I think, what is the time frame um, between 2010 and 2019? So almost a decade, right? That you yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. So, um, so we actually, so the, the, the paper, I mean, from my own background and interest in this, it starts in 1995, actually. So um, as part of another paper, I went through all of the minutes from all of the, the, the meetings where these types of regulations are discussed at WTO. Um, I went through all the minutes from those meetings since 1995 to try to find discussions on alcohol health warning labeling policies all the way through to um, well, December 20, 2019. In the end, it spans 2010 to 2019 because that's when the first such measure was, was discussed. Um, a few, you know, A few other things were discussed in previous years, but alcohol labeling has been more consistently on the agenda with proposals from a range of countries from 2010 onwards.
So we really do have that full decade and that gives us such rich data. Mm. And I think that rich data, I mean, I can only encourage people to read the actual study. I think there are very uh, important findings. I also like the figures. I think there is a really great graph and I think we'll unpack some of the things. But what you're saying now, Pepita, I think shows that in recent years, the trade and investment agreements also as pertaining to public health not just alcohol policy, also tobacco control, other health harmful industries, they have incre received, I think, increasing attention, um, I would say. And so your study shows that we can understand the World Trade Organization as a policy arena where these NCD policies are being shaped. So alcohol um, uh, policy is only one of those. And often these are being shaped without a clear public health perspective. There are some considerations, as you've already explained, but not really clear public health perspectives. And so I wanted to ask you, um, why, why is this, why is there so little public health attention still at the World Trade Organization? And um, how, how come that this is a forum for influence um, on alcohol policy by the alcohol industry? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really great question. I mean, to start with, you know, WTO is a, it, it's, its purpose is to promote trade. So in some senses, almost every way in which the meetings are set up, who's at the table, how the rules are developed, They recognize public health as a legitimate objective, but really its primary purpose is to promote trade. You know, when the WTO publishes its annual reports, it's writing about how much trade has changed over the last mm -hmm. year, what the trade trends are between countries, not what the health policy implementation trends are. And that's because that's you know what its key, key remit is. And then when we go down into the meetings that are taking place between member states, then it's Uh, it, it's representatives from each member state that will be attending these meetings. And they are really trade trade officials and trade representatives. So again, at the individual level, they're there to you know, represent the trade interests of their country. And you know, those trade interests, whilst it might be the case that that country itself also has a health interest in, and you know, might attend other global forums to promote alcohol, uh, alcohol policies, policies, alcohol reductions, it might be trying to regulate alcohol in its own country, you know, in the, in the trade department, especially, they're going to be promoting that those economic interests. And then finally, I mean, so the at, at, at WTO, um, the World Health Organization has something called observer status. So it can attend if invited uh, these meetings and comment on, on members' proposals. We have actually seen this in the case of tobacco. Um, WHO representatives attended discussions on plain packaging of tobacco, and they commented on the evidence base for the measure and how it helped members fulfill obligations under the FCTC, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. We've also seen a couple of cases where when it came to food nutrition labeling, the WHO has also started to make some comments, um, seemingly at the invitation of, uh, of, of um, WTO members, and they're having been some discussion about the fact that these, these, this is taking place. With alcohol, I get the sense that there's, there's much less public health, health policy awareness that these discussions are taking place, that despite being a trade forum, 
health policy is made or made and um, abandoned and changed there. So, so I think it's, you know, the combination of those different factors and there was scope for WHO input and public health voice, but um, many, many uh, sources of friction for those, uh, those perspectives to be aired. I met um, a high-ranking official in the European Commission at the DG Trade many years ago, you know, when the EU was negotiating the free trade and investment agreement with the United States and then Canada. Mm -hmm. I think the point that you, you make that these are individuals that really struck me in this conversation. We sat together for two hours and we didn't agree on anything because here I was with a person discussing trade who has only positive understandings of trade. So all the positive things that uh, come with trade uh, and no, um, no possibility of reflecting about the alcohol is not an ordinary commodity, that not trade per se is not good or bad either. So we, we were discussing mm. these things. It was quite interesting. I think intellectually it was great fun. But it was also very frustrating because you're not moving anywhere when you're meeting with a person where the, the approach is already where trade is good. And I come there to say, well, I agree that th there are many benefits with trade, um, really many, but there are also problems. So, yeah, I can see what you are saying here about who is in the room and also who is not in the room. So I also wanted to ask you, I hope it's not even a, too big of a question, but You said that you even uh, uh, read uh, minutes from the 1990s already, so almost 30 years of material that, that you were going through to find um, when they are discussing alcohol policy. Why does this matter? Can, is, there, is there a shorter answer? Um, why are you looking at why should public health, as you have already said, be more aware of what's happening in the World Trade Organization when it comes to these alcohol policy uh, discussions? Yeah, well, um, I mean, the, the real interest in this area for me and why I see it as really mattering and, and being so important is that, you know, we know that um, alcohol consumption increasingly contributes to premature mortality. Um, you know, I was really struck by the 2018 WHO report which stated that um, alcohol was responsible for 13.5% of deaths in people aged 20 to 39, and for 3 million deaths across all age groups in 2016. To so know that alcohol is, you know, has its significant harms. We also know that a number of governments around the world are recognizing this and recognizing you know, the need to do something to try to, to, to reduce these harms. And it's also an important part of achieving, you know, the sustainable development goals, as well as simply promoting, um, you know, good population health for all people at all ages, at all times. Um, so that raises the question then as to, you know, if there is this uh, significant harm that, that is caused, there is some recognition of that harm, you know, what is it that is making it difficult for countries mm. to regulate and you know in order to actually you know uh, address those alcohol harms we need to sort of also fundamentally understand why it's been so hard to do that because once we understand that then we might be able to identify well where are the places where we may need to grease the wheels 
to mm. enable the implementation of effective interventions to actually take place where governments wish to do so. And so that was um, why I started looking at, at WTO and, and, and trade more generally in this way, because trade is a, is a space which um, is very important. We know that WT, discussions at WTO can have a strong bearing on the approaches that national governments take to their policies, uh, as we are seeing um, increasingly in the area of NCD prevention more generally. Uh, and so this really makes WTO an important space to look at, to understand, well, to what extent is the kind of sand being thrown in the wheels of efforts to implement effective alcohol policies? And, and then what does that mean for how we might speed up process in, in that space? So I think we have set up um, the importance of uh, this overall policy arena and then also the study that uh, you have done now. So I think it's time to go into the details. Can you tell me a little bit, how did you go about the analysis and then actually what is it that you found in, in your analysis? Yeah, so, so in terms of how we went about the analysis, I mean, the first part, which was quite an enormous task, was to collect all of these minutes. Yeah. There are just over 1,500 pages of minutes since 1995 now. Um, so fortunately, I've done some prior work going through them, trying to identify different health policies. And then we identified the specific minutes where alcohol policies had been discussed and then identified those on alcohol labeling. Yeah. So we had this, this set of minutes. And then the next question was, well, how will we identify whether this might be a space in which the industry in particular is trying to shape policy? And, you know, the focus on industry being that they are probably going to be the ones who are asking their WTO representatives to, to you know, go to WTO. And so we did two things to try and identify this. First, we read through the minutes and the discussions on each policy. And we said, okay, well, let's just look for every single occasion when a WTO representative stands up, comments on a measure and challenges it, and explicitly says in that statement, we are representing industry. I mean, not quite so explicitly, but they would often say something like, you know, the industry has uh, commented that X, Y, Z, or we've received a letter from input stating X, Y, Z. However, at WTO, there's no transparency obligations. There's no obligation to say, you know, what the genesis of a type of statement is. So we then took a second step and looked at the data again. And we realized that we'd need to do this because we only found seven occasions when industry was said to be representative, but there were so many other statements and we thought, well, where did these come from? Mm. So for this second part of the analysis, what we did is we first used a wide range of public, public, uh, public research, uh, published research, And we tried to identify what are, the, what are the classic industry arguments? What are the classic arguments in the industry playbook that really distinguish in alcohol, in the alcohol industry in public discussions? Because they make specific types of arguments about what causes alcohol harms, whether policies are worth pursuing, and they just so happen to be those that then ultimately end up supporting their argument that you know a particular policy shouldn't be introduced. So we created that list of all of these industry arguments that have been identified and expressly attributed to industry in other forums. 
And then we went back to the WTO minutes and we identified every every case when at WTO, a WTO member stood up and, and raised a comment and it was very, very similar, almost exactly the same, identical mm -hmm. to an argument that industry has been made and we know industry made it in other domestic settings. Uh, and then we, you know, talked to these up and we, and we found that uh, there was quite a few more of those industry arguments than those expressly attributed to industry. So you created a smart filter to analyze the discourse actually in how many statements are we talking about that you find there in, in this approximately a, a decade that, that you're looking at and then where you're actually analyzing the discourse? Yeah, so there are um, there were 83 documents in total, which contained mm. across them 212 different statements. Mm. So a statement would be um, one statement is every time one WTO member stands up at one particular meeting and comments on one particular policy. And with this analysis, you said that in seven statements, there are there is concrete mentioning of um, the alcohol industry basically as the source of input to, to the statement and then many, many others that reflect uh, alcohol industry, I would say that reflect the alcohol industry playbook that you have identified before. So can you summarize what is the, what do you find in your overall uh, analysis here? How, what is happening in alcohol policy at the WTO and in this TBT committee? Yeah, so I mean, so we identified these 212 statements on the alcohol health warning labeling policies. And, um, you know, almost all of them contain a challenge to the policy. So, you know, the first thing is that alcohol health warning labeling policies are being challenged in this forum regularly. Uh, and sometimes on multiple occasions, and these, these, these can last for many years. But then also when we look at this discourse, uh, as you call it, and, and the industry playbook in particular, we see some very particular industry arguments manifesting in, in this space. Um, I mean, there's one in particular, which is the well-known industry strategy of trying to deflect attention away from the harms caused by its product whilst descaling the problem itself, the problems caused by alcohol policy, in order, it, but the problems caused by alcohol, sorry, in order to downplay the need for a policy intervention. So an example where this, this comes up is regularly when members would say that, um, you know, it's, it's excessive consumption that is the major issue or drink driving or drinking when pregnant that is the, that is the main issue or, in terms of deflecting attention, um, members would say, well, it's not really necessarily alcohol per se that's the problem, it's irresponsible drinking. Uh, so they're really trying to sort of take the focus away from the product itself as a cause of harm and focus more on say individuals or in particular subgroups. And then another, I think, uh, quite compelling <laughs> case where the sort of industry playbook is being repeatedly rolled out is um, by arguing that, you know, information campaigns or any other initiative that doesn't directly regulate the product should be introduced instead. 
So yes, information campaigns, information campaigns about you know the issues of um, driving while under the influence, or educational programs for you know problem drinkers. Was then at the same time emphasizing some of the benefits of alcohol consumption, like mm. uh, saying it could even be compatible with a healthier lifestyle, or that it's an important part of you know culture of a particular country. So what you have explained earlier is that. Um, with uh, public health uh, oriented regulations of alcohol products come trade costs for these alcohol producers um, yeah. and to for a country to be able to defend these public health oriented alcohol regulations they have to explain what the public health purpose is in their own country and i think that the two things that you mentioned here they they are really deployed by the alcohol industry to attack both of these elements right mm -hmm. if you if you advance information and education then you're saying you we don't need any other regulation that actually costs the industry money and if you say that um, if you try to normalize alcohol as a product you take away the public health case for alcohol uh, uh, policy interventions there in the market that again would would cost uh, the, the producers money to trade in the market. Yeah, absolutely. So all of these are, you know, um, real real strategies that are, you know, alcohol industry lo uh, lobbying and influence is about so much more than just knocking on someone's door and saying, we don't think you should introduce this policy and, you know, maybe spending money on a nice campaign to do that. Um, it's all a also about you know changing the terms of the debate mm. so that the policies that could be effective are actually somehow actually over time seen as a much less legitimate and appropriate way to to address the problem of, of alcohol consumption that's absolutely right can we stay a little bit more with the technical barrier to trade committee um i was very struck by i think you find in your analysis that it's 10 countries that have actually needed to defend their alcohol labeling policy attempt, I would call it. Um, I was only aware, I have to say, about Thailand. I think that was a very um, outstanding case where Thailand wanted to introduce, I think, very good health warning labeling on alcohol products in Thailand. And uh, the TBT committee was used to block it and Thailand mm -hmm. still doesn't have uh, this kind of labeling. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, Pepita, why cannot Thailand just do this? Why can the TBT committee be used to actually really stop Thailand from, from uh, implementing this policy? Yeah, so I mean, so first of all, when when Thailand wants to introduce this policy, it does have an obligation under the rules of WTO to tell other WTO members about its intention to regulate. Mm -hmm. So so it has that obligation. And, and you know, if rumor comes out that it's intending to regulate, but uh, but it doesn't provide that information, then you can pretty much bet that at the next meeting of this committee that I look at, someone is going to stand up and say, please provide us with this information. Um, th th this is this is this sort of thing happens quite regularly, actually. So Thailand has that obligation to to introduce that regulation, but then it also is is you know bound by the agreements that it signed 
when becoming a WTO member to follow those rules in those agreements saying that um, we will try to keep what are called unnecessary trade costs to, to, to a minimum. So we won't introduce any unnecessary obstacles to trade where, for example, um, that can something can be called an unnecessary obstacle to trade, like alcohol labeling, where it's a policy that introduces a trade cost, as we've, as we've discussed. Um, and it could be said to be unnecessary because the objective to reduce alcohol consumption could be said to be achieved through another measure like mm. education or something. Now, obviously, there's a, a, a debate about uh, the scientific evidence for that, um, but but that is an obligation that Thailand has. So one, once this policy has been designed, it's likely to be discussed at WTO, um, uh, you know, for any country trying to do this, and then it will be subject to challenge. And, you know, if Thailand were to, to, to breach those WTO rules, uh, it's very, very possible that a formal dispute at WTO would take place uh, if, you know, other members had the interest in really having a protracted legal battle about the measure. And if Thailand decided that it was worth trying to implement this measure and pay the hefty legal, legal costs of a, of a full-blown trade dispute um, at WTO about the measure. In most cases, you know, these governments will change their policy before it gets to that stage because it costs so much money to have a legal battle. Um, so these are the kind of ways throughout the process that, that you know, Thailand can't just introduce its regulation, uh, mm -hmm. at least from a WTO rules and procedures perspective. And these rules that Thailand needs to abide by as a member of the WTO, they are binding rules. So Thailand would have to They, they would be sentenced, so to say, they would have to pay a fine or something like that. Right. Yeah. So um, they are binding. They can. So if the, the rules are broken, then it, it, it can escalate to a sort of dispute, which is a process overseen by a judge. And if Thailand mm. is found to have uh, broken the rules, then um, there's, there's not necessarily there's not compensation necessarily at WTO. Um, but it's possible that they may be required to change the, the, the measure or it's possible for those who are complaining about the policy to introduce some kind of uh, penalties uh, against Thailand for the measure. So what I, this is actually very interesting for me, Pepita, because what I take from your explanation is here that there is actually another global forum that matters for alcohol policy development. Because I, I would now assume that um, Thailand or other countries have to inform at the WTO about uh, upcoming marketing regulations, taxation regulations. So it's not just labeling. And countries have the chance at the WTO to request information and to challenge this. Am I understanding the extent of of the WTO. Yeah, WTO. yeah absolutely. I, I, WTO is a key forum in which trade policies are discussed. Uh, sorry, WTO is a key forum in which health policies are regularly discussed, including mm. alcohol policy. There are debates about them. Policies can be changed. Policies can be modified. Policies can be delayed. Policies can be abandoned altogether. And different policies can be put on the table precisely as a result of these types of discussions about how they conform to trade rules. So 
WTO is a key key forum in which you know health and alcohol regulations are are being made, um, yeah. despite it being an ostensibly a trade forum. So, in my own understanding of you, um, or in my own wording also of the findings that you have um, now summarized, s seven statements directly refer to the alcohol industry giving input, and I would say. And when countries do that, then they are openly industry friendly. So now I would say, mm -hmm. okay, to summarize this, we have a situation where in the uh, trade arena at the global level, alcohol industry friendly countries can challenge other countries, alcohol policy development initiatives, right? It's actually at the initiative uh, level um, and uh, really advancing alcohol industry interests, alcohol industry talking points, like you are saying, even shaping the entire understanding of what is a legitimate alcohol policy measure to, to implement. And then I noted, and now we are, I think, unpacking a little bit more some of the findings. Um, I think eight of, out of these 10 countries that had to defend their alcohol labeling policies, they are low income, low or middle income countries. And I wanted to un ask you, where are the challenges coming from? Uh, are they maybe coming from the high-income countries or who is advancing these challenges? Are we detecting uh, power dynamics here or really producer countries that are uh, protecting their domestic producers? What can you see uh, through your study? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's a, it's a really consistent pattern um, both in alcohol and in other non-communicable disease policies that there are low and middle income countries who have attempted to introduce these types of regulations and they are consistently being challenged by a very large number of um, relatively wealthier uh, strong high income countries so the eu usa new zealand australia canada mm. um, japan and switzerland For example, are some of the countries, I mean, in order there, which have challenged these policies the most. I mean, especially the EU uh, and the USA, and to a slightly lesser extent, New Zealand, Australia and Canada, for example. Uh, and these are these are countries where we know there is, um, you know, many multinational alcohol companies are either headquartered or have strong, you know, lobbying bases. And there are also countries which have the capacity to coordinate requests from industry and they have regular global trade policy monitors like the USA, the US, um, the US uh, trade uh, representative keeps tabs on all sorts of policies being introduced in all countries around the world to update industry about what's coming up, uh, what's going to be on the table and what might be a, a cost for their business in, in future. And this explanation brings me back to something that you mentioned earlier, and that is the Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm. Um, and I, I usually talk about that the SDGs, we find, for example, that 14 of 17 SDGs are adversely affected by alcohol. So alcohol is a massive uh, obstacle to development. And so we find an explanation explaining this and also showing the evidence that alcohol policy solutions really can be catalysts for sustainable development, that this Agenda 2030, that is like 
a policy arena where alcohol policy can be advanced. Now we have a competing policy arena where alcohol policy is being blocked, and that is the World Trade Organization. And I, I just wanted to ask you about the policy incoherence here. The EU mm -hmm. as such, as a bloc, is the biggest development donor in the world. So at the same time, they do let they, they do the dirty work for the alcohol industry in the Netherlands, in the in Germany, for example, in, in Denmark. Um, aren't they going against their own interests? Um, what can you say here about these considerations of policy coherence and incoherence? Yeah. I think, you know, I think instead of, um, instead of saying that they are going against their own interests, what I would say is that they are pursuing their goals in a very inconsistent manner. So they may be pursuing uh, a sort of global health and development agenda in one international organization, mm. but then they are being very inconsistent in the extent to which that is even a feature of their approach in another international organization, another forum like, like WTO. And it is certainly uh, very fragmented, the pursuit of these global health and development goals. And, and you know, at WTO, you know, trade is also an important part of development so it becomes a little bit trickier but the relevance of health to development it doesn't necessarily uh, I mean it certainly doesn't feature in in the discussions that I've been looking at and that's sort of um, the thinking is not so joined up in terms of what the health implications of not introducing that public health measure may be for the national economy so absolutely absolutely agree and I, I think that really shows the need for a consistent approach in different forums mm. and also you know a, a consistent approach to to particular policies in different forums and having that that carry across uh, and also a consistent approach to the recognition and, and regulation of the influence of, of vested interests I mean um, a WA Uh, at WHO, for example, um, there's likely to be much more skepticism about alcohol industry arguments that there may be among WTO officials receiving industry arguments to to repeat and add WTO, even though you know the the effects can be you know very powerful on alcohol policy at, at WTO. Yeah, and I think we will get back to uh, some of the points that you talked about now. Uh, I think around transparency and conflict of interest. Um, but I wanted to summarize what I have learned from you now. So um, we see that the alcohol industry playbook is being deployed in the uh, trade arena at the World Trade Organization and specifically the uh, technical barrier for trade committee, the TBT committee. Um, and we see, I heard or maybe I read um, four basic uh, lines of arguing, misrepresenting the extent of alcohol harms and the causes of alcohol harm, promoting the beneficial effects of alcohol, suggesting other policies um, than the most impactful ones, um, so less evidence-based uh, policies, as you have mentioned, and casting doubt over the scientific evidence behind the best alcohol policy solutions and actually what we know about alcohol harm. So that is what is going on at the World Trade Organization. I think you have explained that. And now I want to just go back to what you touched upon earlier, Pepita, um, 
is there no public health expertise in the room when the TBT committee discusses these challenges to alcohol labeling attempts in Kenya and India and, and so on. So is there really no, no chance to actually say, well, wait a minute, the evidence here is actually established and, and we know this. You mentioned the WHO can be an observer, but that was for tobacco. So how is who is in the room when it comes to these alcohol policy related discussions? Yeah, so I certainly haven't seen any evidence in the in the minutes that I've looked at that WHO is is um, is is being able to or being invited to actively participate in these discussions. Wow. Um, so, so who is in the room? It's mostly the the the, the trade representatives uh, and of course WTO staff who kind of coordinate these discussions. Uh, as well. So there, there can be greater input from WHO, but it seems to be lacking. There is, at the World Health Organization, there is a process going on to develop a global alcohol action plan to better implement the global alcohol strategy. And uh, the executive board has just adopted the action plan and recommended the World Health Assembly to finally adopted and put it into action, so to say. So that, that is set to happen in May um, at the World Health Assembly at the next session. One of the things that um, the United States, you will, uh, I think, recognize the pattern here. One of the things that the United States has criticized in the action plan is uh, that it says in the action plan that the World Health Organization should play a role in WTO discussions relating to alcohol. And the second thing that the United States has criticized in this draft action plan is uh, the language around alcohol labeling. So I, th I think this is remarkable. Having discussed this with you uh, for the last 40 minutes, this makes sense to me now why they are pushing, uh, why the, the United States is pushing this uh, so much. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. I, I wasn't aware of, um, you know, the US's particular objections in that respect. And, and, and it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that actually really substantiates one of the points in the paper and that we've been talking about, which is that this is really a key and important forum for for making policy, because if it wasn't, then, you know, why would it be such a contentious uh, point to include? To, to ask you know, WHO to be more actively involved. Uh, and then certainly, similarly with alcohol health labeling, I mean, of course, there are no golden tickets to addressing some of the, the harms from both the health and developmental perspective that are caused by alcohol. But it's, you know, I've done work on tobacco and, and food too, and it's such an anomaly in this regulatory space. Um, but perhaps through these kind of these kind of analyses and looking closer at industry are beginning to better understand, you know, why. And I, I mean, talking to you has been really helpful for me uh, also to even make more sense of the things that I read in the study and to understand really the importance of the WTO as this parallel forum where public health policy is shaped Uh, in the case of alcohol, actually right now, without the presence of alcohol policy expertise. I think that is a big lesson for me here. 
uh, today. And as you said, Pepita, it really underlines what I am seeing in the World Health Organization uh, processes there. And now I think the easiest question um, for, uh, I think, summarizing our conversation, easy, of course, um, a little bit jokingly, now that you are dealing with this in such a depth What are the conclusions uh, th that you come up with and how can this situation be changed? How can public health considerations be strengthened in the WTO? There, there is space for it, as you have explained. It's not there yet. So where do we go from here? Yeah, yeah, great question. So, I mean, the key, the key, the key conclusion, as, you, as you've really uh, also articulated there, is that the WTO appears to be a key forum not only in which alcohol health warning labeling policies are discussed, but also a key forum which the industry may be using to try to shape these policies in ways that align with uh, its interests and, and policy preferences. So in terms of then what can be done and, and what can potentially facilitate the implementation of you know, effective uh, alcohol policies like this that may be discussed at, at WTO, I mean, First of all, transparency over vested interests. You know, it's a first step to just making members aware of whether and when the arguments are being made from a voice with legitimate health expertise or from a voice which has a vested interest in the presentation of any argument about the health effects of a measure, etc. However, you know, transparency may not be enough. I think mm. second of all, uh, clearly greater input from WHO in these discussions to provide a counter to mm. claims that may be misleading or may have weak evidence based. And also to, to flag the potential discrepancies between the you know, legitimate health expertise of the WHO and other arguments that uh, may not have that, that type of uh, legitimacy. And then, you know, finally that, that clear a clear position on, on whether you know this is and should be a space which industry uses. Um, I certainly uh, know that in the case of uh, tobacco, for example, uh, you know, policymakers have become increasingly skeptical about involving the tobacco industry in policy discussions, given its record, and the alcohol industry certainly um, seems to have a, a pretty bad record on trying to implement effective policies too. Then seem to be more involved in delaying them or overthrowing them uh, altogether. And then, you know, finally, alignment between WTO and what people say at WTO and the policies they are pursuing at, in other forums and, and ensuring that those discussions at WTO and what is said at WTO actually aligns with what the purported goals of those rich members that are throwing their weight around at WTO say elsewhere, as we've been discussing. Yeah. I think these are four great points. Um, not all of them are, I think, directly for civil society, but I think some mm. of those, they are also for us to hold our governments accountable. Um, when you talk yeah. about the EU, then I think about uh, Germany, Sweden, other countries like that, where, where we can certainly, for example, work for this policy coherence that you talked about. Also, I think some safeguards um, around industry influence. And I think transparency for democratic uh, countries, that should be a minimum requirement, as, as you said. It's not enough, but it should be a minimum requirement. So 
with this, I think you have summarized the way forward very well and given me, Movendi International, a little bit of homework to do because that is really a space, I think, where we have to engage much more systematically. So thank you very much, Pepita, for taking the time. This was really insightful for me to talk with you. Congratulations on this very important study. Um, and thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks very much. Thanks for a very uh, engaging discussion. Big thanks to Dr. Pepita Parlo for taking the time to talk in depth about how Big Alcohol uses the World Trade Organization to influence global alcohol policy and what we can do about it. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's work to raise awareness about the unethical practices of the alcohol industry and how to advance public health-oriented alcohol policy solutions. In the show notes, we share resources regarding the topics we addressed in the conversation. Your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics and guests are most welcome. Please get in touch at mike.dunbier at movendi.ngo. You can also find my email address in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Taraka Ranchigoda and Kristina Sperkova. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and stay well and safe and talk to you soon. <music>